0: Greetings and welcome to Beatles Stuffology. Two old friends sit around and talk BS, Beatles stuff, on a track-by-track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is J. G. Macquarie and I'm here with my co-host Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello. How's life treating you? Um
1: it's it's treating me fine. I'm I'm you know, having fun delving back into the world of the Beatles kind of takes me out of my own world.
0: Good. Um so The whole point of this podcast is really just for us to sort of ramble about in the Beatles' back catalogue and we're going to be doing it on a track-by-track basis. So that means we're going to kick off with Love Me Do and we're going to finish with Real Love. Um, That should cover just about everything. Now I know that technically means we're skipping My Body Lies Over in the Ocean. Um, Too bad. Sorry, this isn't that kind of podcast where we're going to be completists and do absolutely every song for absolutely every reason. So anybody who's really excited to dive into what we think of when it comes to My Bonnie, you just need to get in touch with us. That's that's the only thing for it. But we're going to kick off today with Love Me Do. So, um, yeah, Um, Andrew, what do you think of Love Me Do? I was just trying to see if I could find a way
1: of talking about it without using the word nascent because firstly it's a lovely sounding word but secondly i think it kind of describes what we're thinking about here because i tell you what it's really easy to criticize this song absolutely easy it's plodding it's simple but i think when you do that you forget about all the things that come after and and as a result you really have to take a step back and think well okay you've got the song but you've also got it as a bit of a gateway drug to everything that comes after. So, you know, if you look at it on its own, it's a bit kind of meh. But if you think of it in terms of the starting point for an amazing journey that follows, then you can see an awful lot of, of what
0: becomes really, really familiar about the Beatles. What about you? Um, I like it. I realise that's a controversial opinion, but there it is. I think it's one of those songs that, uh, yeah, okay, I think nascent is obviously um, a good word for it, but it's also one of those songs which um, I think suffers slightly from the tendency for people to read about the Beatles rather than to listen to them. So if you read uh, Complete Beatles Recording Sessions, or 1, 2, 3, 4, or Revolution in the Head, or any of those books, it's one, I think one of the reasons that this song has such a, 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 not a slight reputation, but it's a little bit forgotten, is because people are so used to reading it. And yeah, especially if you read the lyric, it can come across as a little uh, trite maybe, or a little, you know, it's love me do, you know I love you, you'll always be true, love me do. It, it's it's not Shakespeare. I think that's, think that's fair enough. And I think to an extent, people get so used to reading about, the song, that the actual act of going back to listening to it has that kind of effect. You go, oh, you know, actually, this is pretty good. This has got a lot going for it. And it's that idea that even although, yeah, lyrically it's quite slight, uh, it's quite slight and there's oh, three chords, two and a half. Maybe, musically, I mean, there's very little to it. But the enthusiasm that gets put into it is what really makes it come alive. They really care about this silly little song, and it comes across.
1: I was going to ask you then, you said that, yeah, fair enough, there's, there's a lot to like about it, or where's for that effect? Um, you've gone straight for enthusiasm. Now, from a school report point of view, that's the equivalent of tries hard. So great, they try hard, but come on, you've you've laid your, your cards on the table now. Tell me, what is it that it, that we should be looking at and thinking, or listening to, and going, yeah, okay, this is it. This is this is the Beatles.
0: Funnily enough, I think it might be the harmonica, and I'm not generally speaking a big fan of harmonicas, um, but there is something about it that is it's not. It's not what you would call technically competent, but it does have that kind of, um, I don't know, it just gives it a little bit of juice. If that was just like, if the wah-wah-wah was just being like played, uh, if it was George Harrison playing on lead guitar rather than John Lennon playing on harmonica, it would work. And it works in cover versions, and it works in a whole bunch of other stuff. But there's something about it; it's kind of okay. Raw is too strong, but it's rough and ready, and it's got a bit of it's got a bit of juice to it, yeah. Okay, so um,
1: I'll tell you what I think that that kind of relates to then, because I mean it's not Bob Dylan style. I mean it's too early for it oh, to God, be Bob no. Bob Dylan style harmonica playing. What it is to me is um Max Geldray style harmonica playing. Now, if you don't know the name Max Geldray, that's because you've never listened to a Goon Show. Um, so the Goons, radio comedy act, fifties, um, 50s, late fifties, 50s, with um, Spike Milligan, Peter Sellers, uh, Harry Secombe. They had two musical breaks. One was um, um, a singer um, by called Ray Ellington, and the other one there was always a hy- harmonica player called Max Geldray. Yeah, um, and and to me that's what it sounds like. But then that kind of works because that's the kind of world that George Martin comes from, that sort of, you know, comedy recording. It's the kind of um, comedy performance that the likes of John Lennon would have listened to an awful lot. So it's another one of those those points where you can sort of look at it and go, OK, well, there's a bridge to this world. And what they're doing is they're taking something that they've got some experience of and then melding it um, in a new way. So, you know, I, I'll give you the harmonica all day. Um, but the problem I've got with the harmonica is it kind of sets that that rhythm uh, it's a very plodding rhythm it's a very unusual rhythm and and the reason why I mentioned that and I realize I've fallen into the category of um um <laughs> look here's something critical yeah again I said it's very very easy to do that it's because when you start listening to cover versions of Love Me Do what you end up realizing is that it's very hard to do at a different tempo. Almost nobody has tried to do Love Me Do at a different tempo. Um, They're they're far too influenced by that plodding um, sort of beat that, that comes with it and feel that they've got to replicate it. So it's almost as though the tone for that is set by the harmonica, that kind of descending line on the harmonica has a rhythm that just gets stuck, which is a shame because... You know, I, I'll, I'll agree with you. The enthusiasm is there, and it bursts with energy in a way that so many songs at the time just don't.
0: Yeah, when this got to its uh, highest chart position, Telstar was at number one. Now, Telstar is an interesting record for a lot of reasons, but it's not bursting with energy. Nobody listens to that and, and, and you know, feels the electricity running through them. Um, and I think, I mean, I mean, what you're saying about the kind of plodding beat, I think that's true. I, I do agree with you, um, but also I think it's it's definitely a song that lacks for Ringo, and I think that's the thing about it is that um, you can tell like you were t- you, again mentioning the word nascent, yeah, it's nascent and it's nascent because Ringo's not on it, and of course there is a version with Ringo on it. I think the first pressings of it had Ringo on drums, and then he was replaced by Alan White, um, and you can just tell it's not him. And and so, because Ringo doesn't play stiffly. In fact, he's one of the first kind of drummers that had that far more relaxed kind of approach. It's not that kind of stiff, almost kind of motoric drumming. Um, And he's got this sloppiness about what he plays. And it's such a distinctive part of the Beatles. And I don't mean sloppiness as pejorative. I bloody love Ringo. And across the whole course of this podcast, I will be singing his praises from here until the last episode. But... You can tell it's not him. And McCartney's struggling to lock in a little bit as well. It doesn't quite... Like, it's got a good bouncy little bass line. And the bouncy bass line, I think, doesn't quite match with this slightly plodding kind of drummer. Not that he's bad. That that sounds too critical. But it's... it's, There's there's just that extra little spark isn't there. And my feeling is that that's um, because Ringo's not on it. But the energy and enthusiasm is you can tell... How much it matters. You can tell how much, um like McCartney wants this to work. It's in his vocal. Every, like you say, it's a, you know, it, it, it's a it's a passing grade for trying rather than for end results. And nah, that's maybe a little harsh, but it's it's also, I don't know. There's it's 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 not a complicated vocal, but there's it's got the split harmonies. He's got a good bass line going on, and it feels assured. That's the thing there's a confidence and assuredness about the way it's being delivered which which kind of belies just how early this is in their in their uh, repertoire
1: i wonder if it would have more energy more more bite i know you've used, i know it's got enthusiasm but the rhythm kind of takes some of the energy for me i just i've, I've never heard um you know one of those sort of early live recordings of it or maybe Maybe one from the you know the BBC sessions or anything like that. So I wonder if if it's worth a little bit of homework um, to to have a listen and and to see whether or not there is something different going on. And actually, funny enough, I was saying that, um, about the cover versions. Um, the only cover version I can think of which does seem to do uh, seem to break free of that rhythm to an extent is a cover version by a little band you might have heard of called the Beatles. In about 1969 during the Get Back sessions where they had Billy Preston uh, playing with them. And, and it sort of sounds slightly Lady Madonna-ish, particularly in McCartney's vocals. But the, the keyboard makes a massive difference. Um, and the only other one I can think of, I mean, I, I say I'm going to pluck this out of the air as, as though I'm some sort of knowledgeable guru when it comes to music. But really, I was just going on some quite good websites earlier. Um, you know, a Spanish band called Estereotipo. Um, who, who do a cover of it um, that's sort of reminiscent of Franz Ferdinand's Do You Ever, which I thought was a really, really clever observation. And then when I found the only um, you know, piece of writing I could find about the band, it turns out that the guitarist goes by the name of Fran Fernandez. Um, <laughs> so I think there might be something deliberate in that as a, as a particular musical um, crossing.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I had never heard that um, cover version until you sent it to me earlier today, and it's really good. So I, I highly, highly recommend it. But it is, um, it is interesting again that such a small song that consists of so little can be sort of stylistically that varied. It's not, it's not a song that calls out for, you know. Yeah, like I don't know, a ska version or you know a croup rock version or something. I'm sure they're out there. I am sure they're out there. But yes, they,
1: they are. And I want to point you in the direction of a group called Ringo Scar. Oh God.
0: Yes. And actually,
1: oh. <laughs> actually, do you know what? It it kind of works. It does kind of work. There is also apparently a band called Yellow Dub Marine as well that do um scar covers. Um, You know, kudos uh, when it comes to the names there, Ringo Scar. Yellow dub marine. I
0: do like that. Yeah, no, you'll you'll, you'll never get anybody, uh, you'll never get any criticism from me for an atrocious pun. That will always be something that I will hold dear to my heart. Um, but even even although it can be done in that way, I still don't think it's screaming out for that, you know. Um, and I mean, if you particularly if you contrast it with um, "PS I Love You," which is the B side, um, it does have a certain. I don't know, joie de vivre about it. Like, P.S. I Love You is a genuinely slight song. There's, there's very little to it. It's, it's kind of winsome. It's kind of uh, really sort of quite unremarkable. Um, and they're sequenced next to each other in the album as well, so the contrast really shows up. It's it's hard to kind of get away from. And yeah, there is there is a spirit about "Love Me Do," which is is somewhat lacking in, in "P.S. I Love You." Despite the fact that they have the same author, they're covering broadly the same kind of territory lyrically speaking. But it, it, "P.S. I Love You" just doesn't have the same the same energy to it. It doesn't it doesn't feel like it's got the same investment now. Whether that's because they knew. That um, Love Me Do was going to be the single, or because I, I know they really pushed for it so that they didn't have to do that god awful Jerry and the Pacemakers song, How Do You Do It? Um, oh, God, it's so bad. Um, sorry Jerry and the pacemakers fans. Um it's you know, that's that's what was gonna be the single. So maybe they really did put the extra effort in because they wanted it to be a Lennon McCartney number that was going out. But you can you can hear the difference in approach, I think.
1: It's worth pointing out, of course, that at the time to have their, their first single as a self-written uh single is a huge achievement. And and that's oh, gotcha. for me one of the things that, that marks them them out, really. I was listening to um, um, the Word podcast the other day and it had Mark Lewison on there um, and of course he was talking about the one of the things he was talking about was the fact that you know the Beatles were the the kings of the scene in Liverpool they weren't just another band they were the top dogs there and so if anyone was going to make it they were going to make it that they had something about them I mean as well as having luck of being in the right place at the right time meeting um, Brian Epps um, Brian Epstein at the, at the right moment, you know, the, everything kind of kind of fell into place. But they were really good at what they were doing. And, and I think the fact that they had the confidence, the personality, the drive, the management, whatever it was, to be able to say, oh, you know, we've got another Lennon-McCartney original here, um, you know, really stands out, um, especially when, you know, you look down that chart and, yeah, it's just it's just full of people doing other people's songs. And yeah, when the Rolling Stones finally come along, they start off doing other people's songs. When the Kinks come along, their first singles, Long Tall Sally. were well, the Beatles, it's another Lennon McCartney original. And I think that's, that's such a crucial thing to remember. Now you did mention the lyrics. Uh, I just, just want to sort of, you know, cover the, the lyrics for a second, because mm. again, I'm going to fall into the trap of, it's very easy to criticize. Um, there aren't many words in this song. There's about 20 words in total, and that's fine. That works. We could name other songs where they're just sort of, you know, broadly repeating themselves over and over again. Because you know what? In the grand scheme of things, I'm one of those people that generally thinks that lyrics don't really matter. But we could talk more about that over the coming weeks, years, decades of, you know, of Beatles analysis. I don't always pay attention to the words. I might pick out the odd one here and there, a phrase that's particularly appealing, but actually a lot of it kind of passes me by, and it's more about sort of like the general feel of a song is the thing that really kind of gets me going. But, you know, I'm I'm sort of interested in the fact that, yeah, okay, love me do. That's great. You know, I'll always love you. That's fine. Please love me do. That's fine. But he wants someone to love someone like you. What, not actually you. Someone like you, I think, right? Okay. So we've got this 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 great little thing going on, and I want someone to love, and I'm telling you that I love you, and I want you to love me, but I want someone like you. Yeah, I mean that's one interpretation. So your sister, for example. I mean, it, it, to be perfectly honest, you, you have to be a little bit picky because he's only given you about twenty words to work with. So, um, and they are bland in the in the poppiest pop way um although interestingly once you then get further into mccartney's oeuvre because mccartney's often criticized isn't he for being sloppy and sentimental you don't have to get far i.e um i saw her standing there before you start getting something a little bit more racy so you know there is always that other side to paul
0: yeah and it's it's one of those Sort of cliches which have been imposed on history as well as the idea that the you know the particularly early Beatles were sort of fairly safe in terms of the way that they were presented, um, and that the way that they were interpreted by the public because you know Brian Epstein put them in suits, got the haircuts, blah blah blah, all the all the sort of cliches of it, um, and you know the Beatles wanted to hold your hand, but the Rolling Stones wanted to do it with you and all that kind of stuff, you know. Um, but that's kind of a that's kind of a narrative which has been imposed on that for the time you know what they were doing was sort of fairly i mean racy is probably overstating it but you know it it had impact it it wasn't just nice safe you know again you were talking about the charts there but you know like compare love me do to the locomotion or something like that which was which was in the charts the same week and it's you know it's got it's certainly got a bit more a bit more kind of a, a sexual spark is overstating it but it's got a bit more thrill to it for sure
1: but maybe also that's just clever marketing because you know some of the accounts of what they got up to in Hamburg, for example, and particular, particularly George. Uh, yes. George was um, 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 energetic,
0: I, I believe. I the ladies, man.
1: Well, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Thank you for making the metaphor blindingly <laughs> obvious to <ultimately. laughs> Um But um, yeah, no, they they had that cut and and thrust, which again. Let's, let's gloss over that. But, yeah. you know, so th- there was something going on there that was a little bit darker under the surface, whatever the clean-cut suits and the um, ooh-love-me-do cheeky smile um, would suggest. There's there's certainly a band of um, of depth.
0: Yes. Well, and even the title, like, Love Me Do, it's not... Uh... When I say it's not grammatically correct, um, but it but that's kind of the point. It's 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 a lyric which is uh, being delivered in the vernacular. It's like "Love me do." It's not "Please love me" or "Be my baby" or kind of something like that. It's yeah, "Love me do," it, and it's got a, that slightly vernacular feel to it. It's, it's that again, along with that slightly rough and ready harmonica or or that you know things like that. It gives it. It doesn't look edgy by. Now standards, of course, it doesn't. But you have to judge it against the fact that you know. Also in the charts that week was Mister Ackerbilk. So you know, relative standards and all that. And um, I'm not having to go at Ackerbilk, but you know, relatively speaking, something like a title like "Love Me Do" is gonna stand out. You know, it's it it's it's not "Send Me the Pillow You Dream On." It's 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 there, yeah
1: we we do need to be i mean a, a bit i think it's always good to look at the uh, what's in the charts but of course you know there there is that um i mean you talk about a narrative being being imposed or it a cliche being imposed um but there is always that sense that we remember things differently so if you're one of those people in the UK who um have been watching um, Top of the Pops reruns on a Friday night on BBC4. You'll know that even in some of the great years of, of you know, the, the, the early 80s, on 80, 81, 82, when there were some absolutely amazing songs in the chart, there were one hell of a lot of dross as well. And the dross sold a lot of records. Punk might have been a shot in the arm, breath of fresh air, blah, 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 blah. But it didn't sell many records.
0: No, no, definitely not. And if you, if you look at the sort of sixties overall, if you pull the Beatles out of it, most of the big sellers are extremely conservative. They, it's not really the Kinks and the Stones and the Who and the you know all that kind of. It, it's not. It's you know, God help us, Rolf Harris and and you know Cliff Richard and people like that. It's 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 very. Conservative when you when you pull the Beatles out, but of course that does require pulling the Beatles out, and, that, and that's kind of the point. Obviously they're the they're the vanguard; they're the ones that are, are sort of leading that that sort of cultural thrust. But yeah, I mean you're quite right, and in a way, sort of looking at it that you know it helps to prove Sturgeon's law, which is basically that you know ninety percent of everything is crap, um, but it's finding the ten percent that's finding the good stuff, and you know the charts do bear that out. Um, for all that I might be making sort of snide asides about um, Mr. Ackerbilt, you know, this is also the year of, of Return to Sender. 1962 is from Return to Sender, was just a great song. And, you know, Dinah Washington released Drinking Again, which is a great album. So this there is plenty of good stuff out there, even if it's not all, you know, peaking at number one in the singles charts or whatever. And, yeah, that's... that's going to become kind of the ongoing story of the Beatles is where those two things kind of fold in together, where you do genuinely get good quality stuff and it genuinely shifts in the same sort of quantities that, that a lot of the dross would uh, previously have managed. And I think
1: one of the, the key things in is about this song is that it stands out in terms of quality compared to what was being released at the time, but it doesn't really stand out in quality in terms of some of the back catalogue of the Beatles, and and to, no. to sort of to give you you know um, perhaps some reasoning for that, and I'm, I'm talking a lot about cover versions at the moment, but you know that's that's fine. You're the one that's got a little bit more musical knowledge than me, so I'll, I'll focus on some of those those cultural aspects. There's been something like a hundred cover versions of um, of Love Me Do, but one of the problems with it, if you then sort of start looking at them, most of them seem to be by um, not people choosing to do Love Me Do because they they really like the song and can bring something new to it, but because they're doing some sort of tribute album or part of a tribute album to the the, the Beatles, it's so-and-so sings the Beatles, um, you know, whether it's, um, you know, the Beatles themselves, whether it's the Smithereens in the 2000s with, funnily enough, Andy White on drums. So they, they got him to do the drumming on it, um, you know, and, and, you know, it's it's that sort of, even Ringo Starr, God bless him, covered Love Me Do on on one of his later albums and made it sound like a fifth rate traveling Wilbur's. You know, it's but it's not something where people go, do you know what, I can bring something to this because it's such a great song. It's a -a workaday song. You know, it's effective, but it's not something that you can really impose anything on because it's just so structured. Maybe there's there's just yeah. too much rigidity to it. So it's it's one of those things people do because they're doing Beatles songs rather than because they want to do a cover of Love Me Do.
0: Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a good observation. And I, I, like you say, I've got a bit more musical knowledge. What you mean is I can play guitar. <laughs> I don't want people thinking you're suddenly going, going to start launching into a diatribe on on Mixolydian scales or something because that's no, that's not going to be the case at all. Um, yeah, it, it's. It's, I mean, you said, it stands out on Please Please Me, though. There isn't a lot, Please Please Me is a funny old album, and I know we'll talk about about it more as we're kind of going forward, but like of the material that's on Please Please Me, it's noticeable that it's the Lennon-McCartney songs, which are basically the good ones, and the cover versions, which basically aren't. And they'll get better at that. I, I still think uh, the, the Beatles cover version of um, You Really Got A Hold Of Me it's as good as the Smoky Robinson version. It's different, but I think it's got its own kind of thing. I really, really rate it. I think they figured out how to do that kind of stuff very quickly. But, I mean, you know, again, all the usual cliches about, well, Please Please Me was recorded in a day and maybe having a bit more time, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, But still, their own material on that album does kind of stand out in in a way that a lot of the other songs in that album don't I don't think it's a bad album I don't want to sound like I'm slacking it off. It's a Beatles album for goodness the sake but you know it's it, yeah it, it, it it's a weird song like that it's it's just so obviously the start that's the thing and there's no like we know that's not a fair sort of lens to view the song through but it's almost impossible to view it through anything else.
1: I'm gonna make a comparison I'm gonna say if you if you listen to it on its own, it is a bad album, okay, but I'll come back to the um my favorite c word context. If you think about it contextually then i mean it's it's awesome. There weren't really pop albums of this type at the time, and so doing what they did was astonishingly influential, so the comparative point here. Is, and this could be a comparison that may never have been made before, um, never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols, which is by all measures an awful album. If you listen to it now, it's like pub rock at its worst. It's just so repetitive and dull. And yet, think about it in relation to what was going on in the mid to late 1970s, and it's astonishing. Listen to Please Please Me, and there will be songs that we'll talk about where we will have stopped talking by this point. We're sort of about 30 minutes at the moment. We'll struggle to do five minutes on some of them. P.S. I Love You is an example, because P.S. I Love You is a 30-second song that just gets repeated four times. There's not much to say about it unless you're just going to spend hours and hours ranting. However, thinking about it in terms of what came before and what comes after it's a masterpiece. It's a mold breaker. It's an insert cliche um, here sort of thing. It just really does something that, that I think when people reflect on the history of pop, we'll go, yeah, you know what? Even if we don't like all the songs on it,
0: we really admire what it did. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably true. And again, uh, sort of contextually, in terms of albums, you know. Dean Martin's releasing an album in 1963. Frank Sinatra's releasing an album in 1963. Sammy Davis Jr. is releasing an uh, an album in 1963. Um, I think, if I remember correctly, um, 1963 is also the year of "I Left My Heart in San Francisco." It's so you know, that's that's the kind of that's the kind of stuff that was. Uh, and again, it seems easy to mock that stuff, but it's so easy to forget how many units it shifted. That stuff just, you know. You, you you couldn't not sell it and and that's that's what it was up against you know and and for all that uh, yeah please please me is uh is it my least favorite beatles album i don't know it's very hard to the least favorite beatles album but you know still yeah contextually it works it it, it it it's a good enough album that it was also able to basically change everything because everything that come if that album had flopped that was game over it didn't it took off and then we get with the Beatles and then everything else just takes off from there. So, you know, it was good enough to work. Yep. Yep. You got me there. Yep.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm out on love me do. You know, it's one of those things. Yeah. It, I th- I'm sure we will find there'll be songs where we will just be able to sit here and, and, and go on for hours. But then let's face it, there are writers who've gone on for hours about individual songs. Um, love me do. Well,
0: like it? Love it? Don't know. And, yeah, that's probably as uh, good a place as we're going to find to leave this one. So, um, OK, that's episode one. We've done it. Look at that. We succeeded. I'm, I'm impressed. That's our please, please me. And I think we can probably leave it there for now. You can contact us at our email address, which is BeatlesStuffology at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at BeatlesStuffology. And you can find more of my writing at www.jgmcourney.scott. Please like, rate, review us on whatever podcast you're using so that more people can find the show. Next week, we are going to be covering the B-side of Love Me Do, which means we are going to be talking about P.S. I Love You. And I hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep listening.